Ricky Tregascus was boasting that he'd got away with murder, quite literally. He seemed to carry a persona about him that he thought he was untouchable. He seemed to express delight, satisfaction that he'd gotten away with it and that he couldn't be tried again. Welcome to the Bailiwick Express podcast with me, Fiona Potany. Today, justice has been served. 32 years after Ricky Tregascus viciously stabbed 85-year-old Emma Anton and murdered Barbara Griffin with a single knife wound to the heart as she rushed to rescue her aunt, he has been sentenced to life imprisonment. Tregascus had faced a trial for the 1990 killing and attempted murder a year later, but he was acquitted when a key witness, who said Tregascus had confessed to him, ran away to Scotland on the eve of the trial. Sadly, a subsequent acquittal left him a free man, free to boast to his sister of getting away with murder by making it look like a burglary gone wrong, and free to kill again. Seven years after claiming an innocent life in Jersey, Ricky Tregascus went to Cornwall. There, he kicked Michael Josie to death in a violent and unprovoked attack that landed him a life sentence in the UK. It was in part this tragedy that led multiple witnesses to come forward with fresh evidence. Evidence that painted a picture of a twisted killer who bragged that it felt good and satisfying to end someone's life with his bare hands. Thanks to the bravery of these witnesses, a change in the law removing the so-called principle of double jeopardy and a cold case review, the guilt of Ricky Tregascus was finally established during a retrial in May and the case can finally be put to bed with his sentencing today. At the helm of the latest probe was senior investigator Lee Turner. I spoke to him following the trial. We discussed the crime, cold case investigation, Tregascus's character, and, importantly, took the opportunity to remember Barbara Griffin and Emma Anton. He started by sharing his journey to becoming a cold case investigator. I first joined the police in 1994, so four years after the tragic events of August 1990. Uh, Back in 2012, I'd been heading up the financial crime unit as a detective inspector for for some time. And uh, I was asked at that stage in the summer of 2012 if I'd look at two unsolved murders. Uh, This one and the murder of Tula Hook in 1966. Um, So I spent about seven months with a couple of colleagues uh, looking at two cases in a detailed review capacity and um, identified that there was potential to to reinvestigate this one and and to take this one further in in identifying and securing evidence against whoever it was that had killed Barbara Griffin and attacked her aunt, Emma Anton. And just tell us about that review period. What does that entail? What do you need to do when you're you're trying to establish whether or not a case needs to be reopened? Well, as you'll uh, as as you'll imagine, there's an awful lot of material obtained during a, a murder investigation or any serious crime investigation, for that matter. Um, so that review period involves a lot of reading, uh, a lot of attention to detail, trying to absorb a lot of information in a relatively short period of time. Um, a, a, Applying a, an investigative mindset from a completely objective perspective, so having had no involvement with the case before, uh, keeping a very open mind, and just thinking um, strategically about where you could take an investigation forward such as this. 
You said that you were previously in financial crime. I mean, how, how did those skills translate? How did you use some of that um, sort of investigative work that you'd use there in, in applying it to this? Well, as a de- detective inspector in financial crime, you're also on the CID rota, so you cover your, your share of uh, serious crime, um, standby cover. So the involvement in um, other types of crime at that level uh, and my training that had led me up to that um, was could be consistently applied across the board in, in respects of all, all crime types. But I suppose from a financial crime perspective, uh, attention to detail and um, being confident enough and being able to review large amounts of information, um, identify what is relevant and pertinent and weeding out that which isn't uh, is something which came as very valuable in a case such as this, I think, where there was an awful lot of information to digest. Take us back to uh, 1990, that night in August. For those who may not be aware of what happened, how did this tragedy unfold? Barbara Griffin was a a 59-year-old lady who lived at Leget Flats in a ground floor flat. She lived by herself, um, three adult children, and she had her aunt Emma Anton, who came to visit at least once a year. Uh, who, uh, from Paris. At that time, back in the summer of 1990, Emma had arrived two or three weeks earlier, staying with Emma. Uh, sorry, Emma was staying with Barbara in that ground floor flat. Um, at about two o'clock in the morning on the 2nd of August, which was a Thursday, uh, an intruder got in through a window into the flat and savagely attacked Emma Anton with a number of stabs. Barbara, on hearing Emma's cries for help, seemingly came to her assistance and received a fatal stab wound to the heart and died a couple of hours later. Uh, Emma, thankfully, um, survived her injuries and went on to live for for a number of years afterwards, uh, reaching the grand old age of 103. (laughs) Wow. Um, So a a remarkable lady. Um, Shortly after the attack, Barbara was able to make a 999 call and ambulance and police units were dispatched and... um, investigative resources were put into place very early on and sadly on hearing of Barbara's death uh, two or three hours later uh, a murder investigation was underway. And what type of evidence was gathered at the time? Well at the time there would have been a lot of attention to forensic potential um, so all sorts of samples from the from the scene from Barbara's flat, dustings for fingerprints, fibre samples, bedding, clothing. A lot of people heard, would have been alerted to what was happening in the middle of the night. It was a very, very warm evening, so people were struggling to sleep. People had their windows open, and a number of people heard the screams and looked out of their windows uh, and saw a semi-dressed male um, running uh, running away from the scene. So, uh, you know, witness uh, potential was very early identified, and following that, a significant resource was put into what we call house-to-house inquiries. An area is identified where people living in those premises within that area might hold information which could assist the investigation and which might help the investigation at a relatively early stage in leading it more efficiently towards uh, towards identifying the offender. So a lot of resource was required to do that. There was something in the region of 170 flats in Leget Flats and it's in the middle of a built-up area. Um, so a number of Devon and Cornwall officers were brought over under a mutual assistance agreement to to assist the Jersey police. Um, So significant resources put in. 
in the days following the murder and, uh, and in fact for the weeks and months following. So once all of that evidence was gathered, the police were able to identify a key suspect, Ricky Tregaskis, who was eventually charged. What happened from that point? Ricky Tregaskis was charged with murder and attempted murder on the 7th of August, so five days after the event, and then remanded at Lemoy Prison pending his trial, which took place in September, October 1991. Uh, Tregaskis was acquitted of both charges and released from prison. Um, the case effectively was, it's never closed because it's unsolved, but he was the only identified suspect at the time. Um, so police were at that stage unable to progress it any further. In about 2009, there was a significant review of outstanding serious crimes conducted by the State's Jersey Police. So a number of serious uh, sexual offences, two outstanding murders, those that I've referred to, were also identified and put forward for review, a very preliminary view, review undertaken of such cases. And as I said earlier, this one and the case of Tula Hook in 1966 were kept aside for a more detailed re- review, which I was asked to and I was able to undertake in 2012, 2013. And again, following this, we landed on the same suspect, Ricky Tregaskis. What was it in this instance that changed things that he was able to be charged yet again? Back in 2012, when I picked this up, this was an unsolved murder. Um, I approached this with a completely open mindset. I was, I was aware that Ricky Trukaskis had been designated as a suspect previously, that he had been charged, that he had been tried and that he had been acquitted. Um, I had to apply and continued to apply a, a very open investigative mindset. Um, I wasn't looking to find evidence against Ricky Trukaskis. I was looking to identify and find evidence against whoever was responsible Uh, As the investigation continued and investigative strategies were pursued, uh, further evidence was obtained, which pointed towards Ricky Tregaskis being responsible. And as the investigation continued through those very early months, and then more so in earnest from the end of 2018 onwards, uh, the the evidence against Ricky Tregaskis continued to build. um, And there was no evidence indicative of anybody else anybody else being responsible for for, for these terrible crimes. We know that four people were very important in providing evidence that enabled this new prosecution to occur. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yes, four people testified during the recent trial um, that Ricky Trukaskis had confessed the murder and the attack on Emma Anton to them. Uh, These people all received uh, confessions at different times. They are all distinctly separate to each other. There was uh, bits of detail contained within the various confessions which supported other uh, detail in other confession statements. Um, So their evidence independently and together as a whole uh, was very, very important and which I think was instrumental in taking the verdict of the jury to where we got to last week. So who were each of those people? One of these was a, uh, a lady who's now called Marie Dean. Uh, Marie was formerly known as Dean Marie. Um, she's a trans, transgender. Uh, back in 1990, Dean Marie was a close friend of Ricky Tregaskis. Uh, another former friend of Ricky Tregaskis was a gentleman called Darren Hare, who had received a confession after the murder. Um, Tregaskis' half-sister... Diane Harvey also received a confession from him, or two confessions, one of which uh, was 
shortly after his acquittal in 1991, and a gentleman called Terry Chapman, with whom Ricky Tregascus stayed for a few weeks in the summer of 1997. From some of the evidence heard in the trial, it sounded like Ricky Tregascus was almost boasting to them. Yes, Ricky Tregascus was boasting that he'd got away with murder, quite literally. He seemed to carry a persona about him that he thought he was untouchable. He seemed to express delight, satisfaction that he'd gotten away with it and that he couldn't be tried again. Well, let's just reflect on his character for a moment. After Ricky Tregascus's initial acquittal, he didn't go on and live a crime-free life. In fact, there were numerous quite brutal convictions. Can you tell us a bit about this later offending and how far did it factor into your investigation of the unsolved case? Yeah, Ricky Tregascus went on to involvement in October 1993 where a local doorman over here outside Raffles nightclub was stabbed. As a result of that, he got sentenced to six and a half years imprisonment for that stabbing and also a number of other offences. He was released in February 1997 from a UK prison on condition that he resided with his natural father in a village called Mevagissi in Cornwall. It was there a few weeks afterwards that Michael Josie was murdered in that village. Uh, Ricky Tregascus shortly after that came back to Jersey and was arrested in December of 1997 for an unrelated assault and remanded here in Jersey for that offence, following which Devon and Cornwall police had initiated a a murder inquiry by that stage, and um, Ricky Tregascus was taken by the Devon and Cornwall Police from custody here over to the UK, remanded pending his trial for the Michael Josie murder, which took place in 1999. One thing that was really important in allowing the trial to happen, or rather the retrial to happen in Jersey, was a change in the law. Are you able to explain a bit more about that? Yeah, the change in the law, which people may have heard to refer to as double jeopardy, provides for uh, a mechanism whereby somebody formally acquitted of a serious offence could be tried again if certain criteria are met. One of those criteria is that new and compelling evidence has to have been obtained. Um, Compelling, it has to be reliable, it has to be significant. So there's a process by which the Court of Appeal on an application from the Attorney General can consider uh, whether new and, ev- uh, new and compelling evidence has been obtained and may um, overturn an acquittal and order a retrial. Uh, and that is what happened over here. Um, his acquittal in 1991 for murder and attempted murder was overturned and a retrial was, was ordered. That's something quite significant, isn't it? Across the whole of the UK, there have been very few of these cases. Well, this legal provision has been in place since, I think, 2003 in the UK. There have been a number of high-profile cases linked to such legislation, but I believe it's only in the region of 20, perhaps 25 cases in the UK over nearly 20 years that have uh, used successfully this legislation. So, yes, you're right, it is relatively very rare. Um, This is the first in Jersey. It may be the last for some years. But it truly is a a landmark case, and and for you, someone at the heart of investigating it, it must have been extremely satisfying and a moment of great pride to have finally had the case closed and, and with the result that you wanted great satisfaction to have got a result for the families of Barbara Griffin and Emma Anton. They've lived for 32 years with no closure on this. 
Um, Emma was savagely attacked. Barbara was murdered. Uh, and the families of these two ladies have, have not been able to get justice for their loved ones for such a long period. And to finally achieve a result which I hope goes some significant way to them helping find closure at long last is indeed immensely satisfying. And how did the families react when they learnt that Ricky Trugaskis had finally been found guilty of these horrific crimes? I think, I think relief, just great relief, I think, after so long. I, I'd hesitate to use the word joy because, of course, at the heart of all this is, is the tragedy of what happened back in 1990. Um, but I, I believe massive relief that at long last they can rest. Uh, those, those ladies, Barbara and Emma, can at last rest in peace and these families can hopefully, as I said, uh, get some really good measure of closure at long last. Lee Turner, thank you. You can read more about the case, including the full story of Tregascus's offending as told to the Royal Court at bailiwickexpress.com. If you've enjoyed this closer look at one of the island's biggest stories, make sure to subscribe to Bailiwick Podcasts. You can find them in all the usual pod places. Every week we release new interviews, features, explainers and profiles that get under the headlines to help you understand what's really happening in island life. More next week from me, Fiona Potney, and the Bailiwick Express team.